following podcast is for informational purposes only. The contents of this podcast do not constitute tax, legal, or investment advice. Take responsibility for your own decisions, consult with the proper professionals, and do your own research. So yeah, uh, a future where a lot of the data is being managed by subgraphs and you have a decentralized marketplace where people can access their data if they pay a very small fee in GRT, I think that's a a world worth striving for. I think it's a better internet. solution that refers to itself as the ambassador of on-chain reputation and merit-based governance. You may have already heard of Soulbound Labs as they're very active within the Graph community and are also recipients of a Graph grant from the Graph Foundation. During our discussion, Connor shares his ideas about DAOs and smart contracts, the importance of reputation management in Web3, the experience they had as a Graph grantee, and how Soulbound Labs relies upon the graph as key infrastructure for its DAP. We began the conversation by talking about Connor's background in computer science. So my dad first introduced me to computers uh, with Jazz Jackrabbit on his Windows 95 laptop. I was probably four or five years old. And I had a blast with that. And the idea of creating video games for other people to enjoy was always something that uh, was appealing to me. When I learned more about video game development in high school, when I was kind of trying to decide what I want to do for a career, I was turned off by the the long hours and the crazy sprints. So I decided to go with computer science, kind of a more generalized area of study, thinking that maybe I could move to game design eventually. I was fortunate enough to have a computer science class in my high school. So I actually got to learn some Java Um, as a junior in high school. And yeah, I decided to go to a community college because I was terrified of student loans and college is extremely expensive here in the US. Uh, By the way, I grew up in California. I I went to a community college in Folsom for two years and worked a lot as a uh, photo technician at Walgreens. And I was also a volleyball official for youth sports. Um, After those two years, I transferred to UC Santa Cruz to study computer science, and I was all about just trying to get in and out as quickly as possible because I did not want to take out a lot of student loans. So I was I was really focused on studies while I was there, and I ended up graduating in only four quarters. The summer before my last quarter, I had a really awesome internship at a company called Full Power Technologies. Um, They were developing fitness tracking devices, kind of akin to Fitbit. And this is before the Apple Watch was released. This was a really awesome internship because it was quality assurance. And I just got to run around the beautiful Santa Cruz mountains testing their devices and just get exercise on the job. So it was really awesome. After graduating, I ended up working at Full Power for about three years as a software engineer. I was making iOS apps. And towards the end, I started 
working on some Scala servlets that would kind of process fitness data and sleep data and process it into nice little summaries that people could see on their iPhone and, and know how, they're, how they've been sleeping and how they've been exercising. Then in about uh, 2018, I started feeling really burnt out with that job. And I think part of it was I only had two weeks of vacation a year. And since high school, I was just I was just going for it. I was trying to graduate college as quickly as possible. So I also had a, a lot of interest in the cryptocurrency space, and I was constantly trying to get my employer to spend some resources in that area, hoping that I could be kind of a researcher. Um, but they weren't having it. I think it was a little bit too early. <laughs> so I ended up quitting uh, to become a smart contract developer. I wanted to study it myself. There wasn't a lot of material at the time. It's not like there was a class you could take. So I wanted to study it myself. I wanted to travel a little bit and start coaching some volleyball teams because that was something I always wanted to do, but I couldn't while I was at this nine to five job. And yeah, that's that's most of my professional background all the way up until Soulbound Labs. So when did you first become aware of crypto and what was it that kind of drew your attention? Because you're trained in traditional computer science. You were working in a traditional environment as software engineer. But what was it about crypto that drew your attention? Well, I first discovered it in college. So this was around 2014, 2015. Um, I had just transferred to UC Santa Cruz and I was living in the, the student dorms. And Bitcoin was a huge hot topic at that time. I think it was, yeah, it was the time when it was peaking at about $1,000 and everyone was talking about it. You know, some people were even mining Bitcoin in the dorms using the university Wi-Fi. And yeah, it was just a really interesting topic that like many computer science, economics, philosophy, political science, just across all different majors, people were talking about it. And yeah, my, my roommate at the time was just completely obsessed. He was one of those, you know, those Bitcoin people that are just always talking about Bitcoin. And this is before it kind of became a little bit more mainstream. So everyone just thought he was crazy. <laughs> So he introduced it to me. Um, I knew people were using it on uh, the dark web in college to, to get some some fun goodies. <laughs> I, I didn't partake in that, but uh, it was interesting knowing that there's like already a use case that that people were using this thing for. Yeah, I I, I guess I really fell down the rabbit hole uh, when I was introduced to Ethereum. Uh, this is about a year later, so around 2016. It was actually my my former college roommate, the the Bitcoin guy. Uh, told me I should buy Ether and hold <laughs> and look and look into smart contract development. And that was some really great advice. Um, I always try to understand things before I invest. So I, I, do I dove really deep and having a computer science background really helped. Having a, a little bit of understanding about Bitcoin really helped. So yeah, once I kind of understood the potential of smart contracts, I'd say that's when I really, I felt like I was in it for the long haul, you know. This was going to be something I wanted to pursue. Connor, I have a lot of non-technical listeners that tune into the podcast every week. And so I want to ask you a couple follow-up questions on some concepts you shared there and get your perspective on how they should navigate or try to understand these things. The first one is, what is a degree in computer science? Like, What does it mean to say, I studied computer science? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Even within my university, it means different things because we had a bachelor's of arts and a bachelor's of science in computer science, and they were very similar, but the uh, bachelor of arts just required a little bit less math. 
pretty much the same theory, just a little bit less math. And I actually decided to, to take that route because it allowed me to graduate faster. But yeah, studying computer science uh, at a university in the U.S. typically is going to involve a lot of theory. And there's more and more kind of direct applications coming into to universities, like professors are recognizing that, that students need to actually create things that are useful instead of just study the theory. Uh, but for the most part, it's, it's theory-based, and that, that's how my studies were. During your studies in computer science, did anybody ever talk about blockchain or crypto or Web3? Is this something that's being taught in universities, or does it fall outside of the subject? Uh, so I was in college 2016, 2017, and I never heard a professor mention blockchain technology. Uh, it was always students. And then this second follow-up is related to smart contracts. So I know it's very complicated and get very technical, but if you were talking to somebody who never heard of Ethereum, never heard of blockchain, how would you describe to them what a smart contract is? Depends how much time I have. <laughs> I'd say uh, the conversation changes based on whether or not they already have an understanding of Bitcoin. And if I have enough time, I like to try to explain Bitcoin before uh, smart contracts, because I feel like Bitcoin is a good example of like the most simple application of a blockchain. And then smart contracts kind of generalize it and allow you to run things like Bitcoin through smart contracts. So yeah, it kind of depends on the person I'm talking to and, and how much time I have. <laughs> and then the last follow-up is Ethereum. You said something about Ethereum was an aha moment for you. And this is a very common theme on this podcast. A lot of people get their interest or first become aware of uh, crypto and all these types of topics because of Bitcoin and because it's always in the media. But Ethereum is typically the aha moment for people where they see the potential. So how would you describe that aha moment for you? Well, I think seeing a couple early dApps really helped, even if they were kind of silly and, and not, not very useful, just knowing what was possible was uh, really eye-opening. Like, for example, um, an early project called Etherroll was uh, essentially just like a, a lottery where you, uh, you pick a number and if you, you know, if you guess a number that was above or below a certain number that was chosen later, then you win some ether or you lose some ether. Um, but it was all facilitated by a smart contract. And these were really early days, but just knowing that like the gambling industry could be disrupted <laughs> through smart contracts, that was enough right there. It's like there's so much money in, in that industry and corruption as well. And people are being taken advantage of. And it would be nice if we could have a system that was more transparent and uh, always fair. So, Connor, we're primarily talking today because of Soulbound Labs and the problem that Soulbound Labs is solving. So let's turn our attention now to that. What is Soulbound Labs? So Soulbound Labs is a, a team. We have about 11 people working on this now. We got started about a year ago through a grant from the Graph Foundation. Very thankful for that grant. It's been really important for our development. We had this idea that it could be cool to reward people for interacting with the blockchain in ways that benefit the larger community. So kind of the first, this was, this was actually a joke that we had at first. We thought, oh, it could be kind of funny to give NFTs to people that just held Ether during a bear market or maybe provided liquidity during a prolonged bear market. 
because the uh, the native asset of a blockchain arguably represents the values of the of the users for that blockchain. And so if you're holding the native asset while it's tanking over time, you're essentially going down with the ship and you're holding on to your values. So it seems like something worth uh, rewarding some kind of reputation signal for. And that's, yeah, that's kind of how the whole idea got started. I had some experience with the graph at the time. So we ended up deciding to use subgraphs to achieve this. But yeah, at first we thought, oh, it would be cool to have a community art competition for the graph so that the NFTs that we're awarding for interacting with the graph protocol could be uh, actually designed by the community and chosen by the community. So we, we set up a snapshot art competition where people submitted art for these NFT badges that we were going to award in the future. And it was a really interesting, fun experience. Uh, unfortunately, the, the art that we got was not white ready. Like it was, it wasn't matched well. It, it just didn't feel like a good set of badges. It was like a bunch of individual pieces of art. And they were all very cool on their own, but it, it didn't feel like a set. So we kind of took a step back and explored other, other ways of creating art with these badges. The GRTIQ podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Graph Foundation. The Graph Grants program provides support for protocol infrastructure, tooling, dApps, subgraphs, and community building efforts. Learn more at the Graph.Foundation. That's the Graph.Foundation. This is GRTIQ. Each week we get to meet a new member of the Graph community and ecosystem. The goal here is to take listeners inside the Graph by telling the stories and sharing the insights of those helping to build it. Please consider supporting this project by leaving a review wherever you listen to the GRTIQ podcast or by sharing episodes on social media. And don't forget to visit grtiq.com slash podcast for detailed show notes that's grtiq.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. So you mentioned the Graph Foundation and your grant being really instrumental. When did you first become aware of the Graph Foundation's grant program? And what were you already doing within the ecosystem at that time? I think we became aware of the grant program early last year, uh, probably just a couple months before we applied for a grant. My experience with subgraphs at that time, kind of interesting. So I was a somewhat uh, frequent user during the DeFi summer of 2020. And there were some, uh, there was a very obscure DeFi protocol called Kitten Finance. And it had a, it had an anonymous developer and it was really low market cap, very experimental stuff. But he or she wrote some really interesting Medium articles about the future of DeFi. And one of them was even uh, basically lining out Uniswap V3 a year before it came out, which, which I found, it, I mean, it blew my mind. I was just constantly thinking about this stuff. But anyways, this project, Kitten Finance, they launched a new token called Liquid, uh, which was essentially just a... It was just a bonding curve offering where there was also fees whenever you whenever you sold the token. 
I just thought it was interesting and I wanted to know what kinds of people, what kinds of accounts were buying into this thing because the first day it launched, it had a ton of volume and it was, it was obvious that it was probably shilled on some, uh, <laughs> some YouTube channels or something by some influencers. And I was just curious, uh, about where that volume was coming from. And I had heard of the graph. I knew that it was powering the uniswap.info dashboard. And I felt like, oh, this is something I should probably uh, learn about a little bit. Why not write a subgraph for this liquid token and both learn subgraph development and learn about what kind of accounts and what kind of activity is happening behind this token. So that process of writing a subgraph for the liquid token, just for my own sake, because I, I just wanted to know more about it. It was so valuable. Uh, it felt like I was in a new kind of playground of DAP development that I had never been in before, uh, where so much more was possible because you didn't have to worry about, you know, gas fees. You could just do, you could do so much. You could even have a, a token that exists just within the subgraph. And that's kind of what I did. I created a, a metric that just tracked like how long a user has held this token over time. So you know, like, you can distinguish between people that are just holding a small amount for a year versus people that bought a lot and then they sold it right away. You can distinguish between the whales and the, the long-term holders. I thought that was really powerful. Well, that's a great take, Connor, on the utility of subgraphs. And it's another theme that comes up all the time on the podcast. I want to go back to the nature of the problem that Soulbound Labs is trying to address presently. So what is the problem you're trying to solve? So the, the general problem we're trying to solve is that we want to humanize the blockchain uh, through research and development in the decentralized reputation space. So the, the two primary problems we're addressing, the first one is token voting often leads to plutocracies because governance tokens can be bought up by whales in order to swing proposals in their favor. And this is something that uh, has been talked about in the community for a long time. Vitalik has written many blog posts about this. I think a week or two ago, Beanstalk's token-based governance was hacked for 181 million via a flash loan. And so, yeah, that's the first problem we're, we're addressing is governance systems that are just based solely on token voting are flawed. It's not like it's a terrible idea to have a, a token-based voting system, but it needs checks and balances in most cases. Uh, every DAO is different. Every DAO is going to have a different governance that's ideal for them. But in general, checks and balances are very uh, valuable. Uh, and then the second problem we are addressing is that for the mainstream, transacting with blockchains is extremely scary and it's the Wild West. So the, the few brave souls that are willing to venture into crypto typically just hang out on centralized exchanges, buy some coins, maybe trade a little bit, but they, they never actually touch the blockchain. And so we want to guide these people to kind of the more established, time-tested protocols uh, where they can earn soul-bound badges for completing on-chain actions, get the users off Coinbase and onto the blockchain. Connor, as I understand it, then this, this idea of the badges and creating some form of reputation management is a problem you're working on at Soulbound Labs. And it's interesting to me because so much of Web3 is you know, people keeping their identity private. And there's this heightened sensitivity about personal data. So how do you kind of think through this relationship between creating reputation management and the trust that comes with that, along with kind of this Web3 ethos of staying private 
and keeping your personal data hidden if you want? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one interesting thing about the the technology we are developing is that it only awards reputation for actions that already happened on a public blockchain. So no matter what, we're always using subgraphs to uh, identify the behavior that is badge worthy, right? So in other words, any any information that we publish about accounts was directly derived from the blockchain. So in our eyes, we don't think this is a, a privacy concern because we're only using subgraphs as kind of like an oracle computation, almost like a, a layer two in a way to determine who's done what on chain. And we're not introducing any new information. But with that said, it is something that we, we like to ask people about because it is a new paradigm. And if that is a concern and people don't want their reputation just automatically published on chain by a DAO or something like that, there are absolutely alternatives where the user can mint their own badges and the user claims badges from a set and it's only public if they, you know, if they mint it. Of course, our subgraph could um, always respond to queries about those accounts. So if someone's willing to pay the GRT, they can always find out what's been going on within these smart contracts that we're tracking. Well, that's a great answer. And I'm intrigued about reputation management, but I'm curious to get your thoughts about how necessary something like reputation management is for Web3 and DAOs. Is it a necessary component? So I think it's a necessary component for a lot of DAOs and DAOs that have a lot of users that are coordinating with each other on Discord or, or whatever it is. Reputation is more important for DAOs like that because you have people that are actually communicating with each other. And so I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's it's required for all DAOs or that, you know, all of Web3 needs this. But uh, there are definitely DAOs that could use this kind of reputation to have better conversations. Like, for example, Discord servers right now are are littered with spam. Like as soon as you you join a Discord server for a DAO you're probably going to get some messages from people pretending to be from the team. And who knows what they're trying to get you to do. But uh, the bottom line is we have the capability to kind of filter channels on Discord. And this is one thing we're developing called Rollbot. It's a, it's a Discord bot that allows you to uh, have access control for Discord servers and channels. And it, it will display badges that you've earned alongside your username. So it seems to me like if one's mission is to help DAOs achieve their full potential, cleaning up the communication in Discord and creating a more trustworthy environment is some great low-hanging fruit. Are DAOs the primary target market for a solution that you've created at Soulbound Labs? Are there other use cases? How have you thought through that target user? DAOs are what we're targeting right now because it seems to be the most immediate concern. But we, we imagine this being something that doesn't need to only be used by DAOs. Like so, something like Rollbot is obviously geared towards DAOs because it's a Discord bot. But theoretically, anyone can define badge-worthy behavior, and then a subgraph can identify which accounts have achieved that behavior. And then you can permissionlessly mint those things on chain if, if you're willing to uh, trust the attestations made by indexers. So 
that's another side of the, the engineering problem we're working on right now is getting the the badges that the subgraph picks up and minting them on chain. What do you make of the current interest in DAOs? They're sort of in vogue right now. Everybody's starting one. Everyone belongs to one. DAO is kind of the new hot thing, so to speak, within the, the Web3 crypto space. And I know they're not new, but they seem to be a constant topic of discussion. From your perspective, what are you seeing? What are some of the DAOs that are shining, examples of what DAOs are capable of doing, and what are they doing differently from others? So I'm really excited to be living through this time uh, where humans are kind of discovering this new technology that allows us to coordinate with each other in a a new way and and not rely on the existing infrastructure. Uh, But at the same time, I know there's a lot of hype. And I think that a lot of the DAOs that are popping up right now are mostly existing because people want to earn some token or, you know, make some financial gain off of it. But I think that in the long run, DAOs will eat the world. I mean, I think that most companies and, uh, you know, a lot of organizations would just be run more efficiently uh, if it were more decentralized. And I, I do think that. As time goes on, we're going to see more and more of our, you know, normal economy kind of getting eaten up by the blockchain. And the more the more human activity that gets recorded on the blockchain, things like restaurant reviews, you know, reviewing the plumber that just came to your house and whatever it is like that's that's reputation signaling right there. And I think that as we kind of approach this world where more and more data gets put on the blockchain. DAOs become so much more valuable because they're they're native to the blockchain and they have access to all of those things. It sounds like you're super bullish on the future of DAOs. Is that right? I am, but it's kind of an odd thing to say uh, for someone that is not participating in DAOs. <laughs> I don't I don't really spend much time <laughs> participating in DAOs. I, I just follow the space and I develop a lot <laughs> with my head down. I want to go back to something you said earlier about one of the two problems Soulbound Labs is currently focusing on, and this goes back to this merit-based governance. So as you said, maybe the off-the-shelf solution that many DAOs and governance structures are using is this token-driven approach. In an ideal world, what do you think, from, from your perspective, governance ought to look like? Well, I think it just depends on what the DAO is trying to accomplish. So just like how you have different governance structures for different countries throughout the world, uh, because people have different needs, you know, you have different sizes, you have different uh, geography. I think that the mission that the DAO is trying to accomplish should dictate the type of governance that is ideal for it. So, for example, if there are things that permissioned DAO members are doing on chain, you know, things that could potentially harm the protocol if that member were corrupt and trying to, you know, steal funds from the treasury or something. It would be cool if positions like that could be kind of backed up by some reputation. So like in order to to become that permissioned member who has access to certain functions in a smart contract, you had to have done A, B, and C in the past, and then also maybe been delegated some tokens or something. It depends on the, the DAO. It really does. Well, inevitably, Connor, someone's listening to this podcast and they're either thinking about launching a DAO or they belong to a DAO and maybe it's not the experience they were hoping for. What would be your advice to people listening about how to create an MVP for an an effective DAO? 
the things that you must have in place to ensure that your DAO really is structured appropriately and has the best chance of doing what it's intended to do? I think the most important thing uh, from the get-go is to have people operating within the DAO who truly care about the future of the DAO. Um, so that early like core group, even if it's small, it doesn't have to be very decentralized. You don't have to to go out and airdrop tokens to thousands of people from the get-go. You can control a DAO from within a development team and then have plans to kind of decentralize over time. So I'd say that would be my advice. I don't have experience with it myself, but that would be my advice. What can you share with us about the team at Soulbound Labs? And uh, I looked on the website there. Are you are you currently hiring? Are you looking for people to join the team? Yeah, we are currently hiring for a full stack position. Uh, we have a team of about 11 people right now, kind of scattered throughout the world. Three of us, uh, me and uh, our co-founder, Jordan Ryan, as well as uh, Oceanus. We all live in Santa Cruz, California, and we get to meet up in person every once in a while. We play an awesome sport called spike ball on the beach. It was just an absolute blast and a great workout. Other than that, the team is kind of scattered throughout the U.S. and various states, as well as Germany and South Africa. We actually, I believe... A couple of weeks ago, you had uh, Mac on the podcast, and he has expressed some interest in, in what we're doing. He's been really active in our Discord channel, and he's based in South Africa. Connor, yesterday was obviously a very big day. It was Graph Day, which is a big day for the Graph community. But Soulbound Labs also made a huge announcement and a huge step forward in, in terms of progress. What can you share with listeners about what happened yesterday? Yesterday, we announced the first release of our Soulbound Studio. This is a GUI that, that people can use to create the criteria necessary to earn a badge. So in other words, this is what really opens the door for reputation to be defined within Web3 without the need to write subgraphs. So the, sub, the subgraph code is all getting generated on the back end and people are looking at a, a user interface and dragging things around we, we have a, a very nice interface for looking at smart contracts and, and picking up on events to award badges for. Because a lot of the, the subgraphs that we've been writing, and we refer to these subgraphs as reputation subgraphs, by the way, a lot of these reputation subgraphs have kind of a standard schema that they, they go by. And a lot of them could be generated automatically on the fly just by kind of picking events out of a smart contract and saying how many of those events need to be admitted or of course, there are much more complex things you can do if you actually write the subgraph yourself. But the Soulbound Studio is a great starting place for people that aren't interested in learning how to write subgraphs. Well, congratulations to you and the whole team. If listeners want to learn a little bit more about Soulbound Labs and this incredible studio launch, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, go to soulbound.xyz. Soulbound Studio is live up on soulbound.xyz. You can check it out and Create some badges for your favorite protocols. Hi, this is Connor Dunham with Soulbound Labs. In my conversation with the GRT IQ podcast has been helpful to you, then please consider supporting future episodes by becoming a subscriber. Visit grtiq.com slash podcast for more information. That's grtiq.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. 
Connor, I want to turn our attention now to a couple follow-up questions about the graph. And you've mentioned the graph a couple times. You've mentioned subgraphs. To get started, how would you describe for listeners the ways in which what Soulbound Labs is working on and the infrastructure that the graph provides overlaps? Yeah, good question. So the uh, the graph is kind of a prerequisite for Soulbound Labs. We wouldn't exist without the graph. Uh, that initial idea of awarding people for holding Ether during a bear market, that was all uh, that came about because I was interested in subgraph development and I knew that that was possible. So yeah, it, it overlaps quite a lot. We aren't trying to solve the same problems. It's more like we are using the graph as infrastructure for the reputation system that we're building. I think that's a good way to frame it. When it comes to the graph, how do you explain it to other people? How do you describe it? So assuming I'm talking to someone that is outside the space, I would first make sure that they understand that, uh, that, that storing data on blockchains is very expensive. And so that's why something like this has value. But once, once I've kind of covered that and they understand that when you put something on the blockchain, it has to be stored by all of the nodes and it's, it's not very efficient, then I draw this comparison to uh, Google search. And I think this is also in the, the graph documentation, probably. I say that the, the graph is kind of like an indexer for blockchains in the same way that Google search is an indexer for the internet. And the difference here is that all of the data being stored is already public. And so it, by using the graph, someone is kind of more empowered as a user. When you're on a website, you're, you're actually getting data that wasn't stored by a company or wasn't you know fetched from some database that could go down at any point. Yeah, that's that's how I, I try to explain the graph. And if if the person has some more uh, knowledge in the crypto space, then it, it's a lot easier. But I think that it's important to kind of have that understanding of what it means to store data on the blockchain before you can dive into what it means to index data on the blockchain, you know? In follow up to that, and I've had a lot of users of the graph on the podcast, but would love to get your perspective on why it's easier to use the graph than to do something else, do it on your own or some other method that, you know, as a non-technical person, I wouldn't even know what it is. Why is it easier and, and better for somebody like Soulbound Labs to use the graph? Yeah. So I have never created a custom indexer myself. I've never, you know, put in the work to actually index the blockchain. Um, but I've heard that it is a insanely complicated task. <laughs> and I just know that or when, when I started writing my first subgraph, it only took a day before I was querying it and finding out inf like useful information. So I think it just really makes it a lot easier for smart contract developers to have data that exists uh, and might not might not be accessible by smart contracts, but at least exists in a another environment and can still be used and displayed on websites. What's your advice to potential or future users of the graph that are trying to figure out the same thing. They've got an idea, it's a dap, they want to get it out into the world, and they don't know where to get started or how to begin using the graph. What do you say to them? Um, I think that if you already know uh, smart contract development, then it's, it's nice to just pick out some of your favorite protocols and write subgraphs for them, um, especially if they don't have a subgraph yet. Or maybe if there is a subgraph, you can fork it and, and add some new features. The the next step, I would say, is to just explore the capabilities of subgraphs, because the thing is, 
Um, a lot of the subgraphs out there right now are indexing dApps that existed before the graph launched. And there are really interesting things you can do if you integrate a subgraph with the architecture of your dApp, uh, not just for displaying data, but for organizing data that gets fed back into the app. And I think that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things that that unlock and people haven't really woken up to that yet because subgraph development is so early. And of course, the first use cases are going to be the protocols that already exist. Well, you mentioned subgraphs, you know, we're early and that's a common refrain again on this podcast. When you project forward, however, five, 10 years and beyond, what's your vision for a solution like the graph and how important it is for Web3? Well, I love this vision of kind of having a, a decentralized marketplace for data. I, I want to do everything I can to, to help create that environment where we, we actually have many different dApps that are using the graphs decentralized network uh, to index their data. I'm someone that that cares quite a bit about data ownership and privacy. So this really speaks to me quite a bit. Um, I'm constantly trying to move away from services provided by Google and, and things like that. So yeah, a, a future where a lot of the data is being managed by subgraphs and you have a decentralized marketplace where people can access their data if they pay a very small fee in GRT, I think that's a, a world worth striving for. I think it's a better internet. Connor, we've reached the point in the podcast where I'm going to now ask you the GRT IQ 10. These are 10 questions I ask each guest of the podcast every week to help listeners learn something new, try something different, or achieve more. So Connor, are you ready for the GRT IQ 10? I am ready. The GRT IQ 10. This is the one. 10 questions for astronauts floating in space. What book or articles had the most impact on your life? I'd say The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. Is there a movie or a TV show that you think everybody should be required to watch? No, because they don't like mandates. If you could only listen to one music album for the rest of your life, which one do you choose? This is really hard, and I'll probably give you a different answer every day, but I'll, I'll go with Selling England by the Pound by Genesis. What's the best advice someone's ever given to you? Find a specialization. What's one thing you've learned in your life that you don't think most other people have either learned yet or know? I've learned that Vipassana meditation is conducive to decentralized identity research. What's the best life hack you've discovered for yourself? I absolutely need exercise, and if I'm in a bad mood, that's usually what helps. Connor, based on your own life experiences and observation, what's the one habit or characteristic that you think best explains people finding success in life? Confidence. And then the final three are complete the sentence type questions. The first one is complete the sentence. The thing that most excites me about Web3 is? The potential to decrease polarization. The next one is, if you're on Twitter, then you should be following. Vitalik. I'm not on Twitter very often at all, but I'll just say Vitalik. <laughs> and lastly, complete the sentence, I'm happiest when... I'm defeating bosses in Elden Ring. The GRT IQ 10. Connor, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate you answering these questions. And again, congratulations to you and the team at Soulbound Labs, not only for being awarded a Graph Foundation grant, 
but also for the work that you're doing and recently released. If people want to learn more about you and follow some of the work you're doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? So first of all, you can go to soulbound.xyz to play around with our Soulbound studio. Uh, EmblemDAO.com is a a great place to explore what we've been working on uh, for the the last year. And we have some really great guides on there for uh, crypto newbies with a lot of definitions for the, the crypto terms. Um, we also have Twitter. We're Soulbound Labs on Twitter. Um, and you can also join our Discord server. From emblemdao.com, I think you'll have access to our Discord link at the bottom there, as well as our GitHub. This has been a production of the GRT IQ podcast. For more information, including detailed show notes, visit grtiq.com slash podcast. That's grtiq.com slash podcast. Please consider contributing to this project and helping build the community by subscribing and leaving a review. G-R-T-I-Q Podcast.